good morning. If you haven't had a chance yet to be on Facebook either that last night or this morning, and you have some people from here who are on there, be sure to get on there and see all the dads and the daughters and how dressed up they are. I mean, it was obvious these people looked forward to this, went all out, and Charlotte did a great job as usual in decorating. It was beautiful in there, and it was great to see those pictures. So when, when those start flashing through, take a look at them. They are beautiful. I know you will. Don't forget St. Bernard's Village this afternoon. I'm not saying this to remind you of it. I'm saying this to remind me of it. It's St. Bernard's Village at 4 o'clock today. If you can be there and help with the singing, that would be great. And what's next Sunday? Chad Wagner, a big old boy, but he's a great speaker and a great man. He's just gotten back from Nigeria, so he'll have a fresh report for us next Sunday. But next Saturday also, man, listen to this. There's so much stuff going on at Valley View. Ladies' Day, and I say that because the ladies need to come, but I'm saying that also because men... We need to serve these ladies and show them what real biblical manhood looks like. Uh, show, show all the visitors, just brag about the men of Valley View. They come to a ladies' day, but they leave talking about the men of Valley View instead of what they discuss. I just want you to do that, so remember that for next Saturday, if you can do that. I want the, uh, Elise came up to me. Elise just baptized not long ago. She turned 14 yesterday. And I said, well, that's something, but if you add 80... To your birthday, you get Bill Barry, who today turns 94 years old. He's got raisin pie for lunch today, and you can have it all. That's the nastiest stuff in the world. I learned that last year, and we had that big party for him, and I said, we ain't having no more parties for you. This stuff is nasty. We usually don't sing happy birthday. And Carla Nix, too, I believe. Is that your birthday today, too? Is that right? Am I right? Yes, okay, she's not going to say. I won't say age, I'm just saying Carla's in there. We're going to sing happy, but I don't usually like doing this, and don't ask me to because we, we could do this every week, but 94, come on. You live that long, you deserve a little bit of a serenade, don't you? And he can't hear you anyway, but he's going he, to... <laughs> so every, everybody's saying, you ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Bill and Carla. Happy birthday to you. He says he's going to live to 112, so I'm thinking we got plenty more times to do that. I've got to show you a picture. Um, not yet. Yeah, right there. Does anybody recognize this guy? When I'm 90 years old and I'm limited in what I can do, the memory of this picture is going to, is going to bring me joy for the rest of my life. So we're at Encompass, which is the old Mid-South, or Mid, is it Mid-South? Hell-South, sorry, Hell-South uh, rehab, and, and Holly McKnight works there, it's a good thing. So I'm in there the other day, and William Reeves, Peggy Payton, raise your hand real high, her husband, and uh, she's been married three times and converted all three of them, so... If anything ever happens to her husband this time, I'm going to line her up with somebody. I want to be a Christian. She is the best matrimony evangelism person I've ever met in my life. He decided he needed to be baptized, and it, he'd been putting it off for so long. He said, well, when I get out of here, and I said, why wait till you get out of here? We can surely pull this off in here. Well, that was something. We called Holly McKnight, and she, she arranged it. She got the whole whole group and they were so ex there's such excitement among all the nurses and and what was about to happen but we won't we go in there and we see this this bathtub and I said 
There's no way. There's no way. Yes, there is a way. We're going to make this happen. And he explained it to me, and I couldn't see it in my mind. I said, Terry, there's no way. He said, well, let me show you. He gets down in the tub. Isn't that cute? I think we need to blow that up as an elder picture for the wall forever. He says, here's how we'll do it, and we'll slide this way, and we'll be able to pull it off. And, and, and so there we go. We said, okay, we'll try it. We get him in there, and you've got you to time it just right to be able to get everything under the water. Right? So, 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 and he's got a back brace, and I'm grabbing hold of it from the bottom because as soon as he's under the water, he cannot help himself get up. He either drowns that way or we pull him up. So we, dra- we, we put him down under there, and I've, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not very strong, and I'm a little worried about this, and I can't get his head to go underwater. And I said, I can't make this. And Terry reaches up from his feet, puts his hand on his head, and slams him down to the bottom of the pool. I heard bones. I heard stuff. I said, he's going to die. He says, yes, but he's going to go straight to heaven. <laughs> we bring him back out of that water, and that man is grinning from ear to ear the rest of the road, talking about nurses. Nurses come by to talk about it. They clap. They applaud. It was one of the greatest days I'll ever remember, and I'll never forget it. It was funny, but I cried all the way home. Somebody making a decision, even late in life, you're never too late. Make that decision, and we think it's important. We know it's important. It's important enough to go to a lot of trouble. When people do it and you realize how much it means to them and how much it means to their salvation, it's a beautiful thing to witness, especially when it's so much trouble like that. And he even brought his Speedo, he said, in case he needed to get in there. But fortunately, Terry didn't have to do that. I mean, anyway, Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. How many have been Christians for 10 years or longer? Raise your hand. Well, as you're holding up your hand, I want you to promise me you will not learn a thing. Raise your hand. You will not learn a thing today. Promise me. I will not learn it. Say it. Because we're going to talk about some basics. I don't want you to learn anything except not what you believe, but why you still believe it. That's all I'm asking you to do. You're not going to learn anything today. The rest of you might. You might know this already. These are basic Christian facts from a great book of Scripture that if anybody knows any Scripture, they know Genesis 1 through 3 because we all make a pledge to read through the Bible and we start with Genesis 1 over and over again and we make it to about Exodus 15 and then we're done. But you go back the next year and you start with Genesis 1. And you've read the story and you know what it says. The question's going to be this. What difference does that old story make now? Is it all that relevant? Is it all that important to know these details? Or is it just this neat story of how everything started and then everything can go as it wants to? And the reason is because as we talk about this gender issue, in a couple weeks we'll talk about the transgender stuff, and then three weeks we'll talk about the role, uh, gender role within the church. 
everything about gender has to go through the road leading through the Garden of Eden. If you're going to know what, want to know what God says about gender and what he expects about gender, you've got to go through Eden. You've got to go through Genesis 1 through 3 and figure it out. So you've got to start with this, and it's the age-old story that we all know, and there's going to be some details that I'm going to point out. We're not going to just read the story. We're going to point out some things. And I want you to know, it's not going to answer every question you ever had about creation. There's lots of questions that go around about creation, and God doesn't seem concerned to answer them for us. He doesn't answer, what about the dinosaurs? He doesn't specifically answer that. It doesn't seem to be a concern of God for you to have the answer to that. It's an inquiring thing. It's an interesting thing. But it has nothing to do with what God wants you to know. And so he left it out. Did Adam have a belly button? Everybody is so proud about that. And everybody just wants to know. But God doesn't care. God doesn't care that you know. He just wants you wondering for the rest of your life. There's all sorts of things like, as he created, how did those days go? He kind of gives you a general report, but he says, I don't, want you, I don't want you enamored with that. And people get mad at Scripture for what it doesn't say. But then you've got you've to trust that there's a reason why God didn't say it and that he chose instead to say what he actually did say. What were the things that he thought were so important you needed to know for the rest of eternity so that he recorded it in his book we call Scripture? Knowing what God put in there is important, but maybe you've forgotten why it still is important. Does it matter today? Is it relevant to your daily life what happened way back there? In the beginning, God created. And the first thing you see is it was tumultuous, it was dark, it was chaotic, it was formless and void. It was just substances he created, and they were all out there and it kind of shows you what happens before God speaks before his word is provided life looks tumultuous and chaotic and you just don't know it doesn't make sense to you and then God starts speaking he starts speaking into that dark chaotic stuff and starts creating order and he even orders it by certain days and suddenly form and shape and order come out of the chaos by the word of God. God, by his word, establishes the order he wants in the world. He makes different parts of creation. I want you to look at verse 11 and verse 13 through verse 13 in chapter 1. You can look at that. God creates living things. In this case, it's vegetation, it's plants, and it's fruit. But unlike the other days, he, he he, he adds something else. He says, this time, I'm going to put seeds in them. The word seed is, appears several times in 11 through 13. I'm going to make these, I'm going to make these, I'm going to speak these into existence. There they are. They're going to have seeds in them, and those seeds are going to be able to reproduce themselves. God doesn't want to make a, a creation dependent on his word to constantly function, right? He wants to make them to where they can reproduce themselves. Day three. That's the vegetation. Then you look ahead here, verse 20 through 23, day number five, he creates living creatures. In this case, water animals and sky animals, all the birds and all the fish and everything that swim in the seas. And he, and he talks to them. For the first time, he speaks to his creation and says to them, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to reproduce yourself. I want you to perpetuate yourself. His order, his understanding of creation, as he speaks it into existence, he gives it the capability 
to reproduce itself. And then we get to day six. This is our day. Early in the day, he makes the land animals. And then he pauses. And he has a committee meeting. You know why you pause and suddenly have a committee meeting? You talk about it. Let us make man in our image. So there's a plan. He sits back and he says, everything else has just been like this? Mm -mm. No, this time we pause, we do a huddle, and we talk together. Together, God is already community. He doesn't need humanity to have community. He already has community. Let us make man in our image. That's the plan. Here's the pattern, our image. We want him, unlike anything else in creation, we want him patterned after us. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he says we have a purpose. I want him to have dominion over all the other animals. He's the top of the order. He's the top of the chain, and he's to, and he's to dominate, or not really dominate. That's a bad word. He's to overrule creation. He's to be pattern his rule like me, and he's going he's gonna to take over creation and take care of it and pattern it after us. And there he is, day six, and man comes, and then he makes them. It says in verse 27, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two different kinds, if you want to put it that way, of human beings. They're both in the image of God. They're both full-fledged humanity. They're very similar to each other, and yet there's a distinct difference. What's the difference for? He goes on to describe it. He said, male and female. And what, what, what do we do with God's image? First of all, we're fruitful and we multiply. The difference makes reproduction possible. What makes a male male is what he contributes to reproduction. What makes a female female is what she contributes to reproduction. And that fulfilling the earth, that's imaging. They're reproducing themselves like God did with them. They're reproducing. So the female... I said the male. Male contributes his seed. But no matter what you do, and I may be proven a liar by the weird science of our humanity, a man will never give birth to a child. That's not his role. That's what makes him man. He contributes seed, but he does not reproduce himself it takes the woman who cannot reproduce a, a man without a person without the male seed but without the female there would never be any children that's what he's saying that's what makes male male and female female and he says and so here after the image of God and they go and he says to them be be fruitful and multiply I want you to use your God imageness that I make in you and I want you to go and reproduce yourself and I want you to fill the entire world Fill the world with other people like you. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living. I, I want you to oversee the creation I've made. You are the epitome of what I've wanted. You roll back the curtains and here's the, the big thing and it's humanity. And it's male and it's female and it's how we reproduce. Now I have to pause at the end of chapter 1 and as God goes on to rest on day 7... And wonder, why did he share what he shared? There's any number of things he could have focused on, and we all want to see the video one day, but why is it that in Genesis 1 he records what he does and ignores what he ignores? Why does he say, you don't need to know this, the dinosaur thing and the, all this other stuff? You don't need to know that stuff. You need to know this. 
I want you to know this. Day seven comes. It's all ended. The generations, Genesis 1 should continue through verse 4 of chapter 2, but it doesn't. That's the generation. That's how it is. And then chapter 2, he says, "But, but just a minute. I want us to rewind. And he goes back and he says, I want us to zoom in. I want us to go back in time now in chapter 2, and I want us to zoom in on something because I want you to see it up close. Why, does he, why do we ever rewind and zoom in? Why do we ever do that? You're at a football game, and I don't know who made the foul or not. Rewind, zoom in, and see the different angles. We try to, or you're at a gas station. Somebody's robbed the gas station. Who was it? Rewind the video and zoom in. I want you to know to be able to identify something. God says, I really want to bring your attention to this. And so chapter 2 comes, and suddenly some details. This is right before he created man. He zooms back to day 6. He he just totally ignores days 1 through 5. He doesn't think we need to know that. He thinks we need to know about day 6. And so here he comes, he zooms in, and he says, first of all, in verse 7, the Lord got personal. He had spoken everything into existence from a distance, kind of just kind of said it here. But this time he takes the dirt in his hands. He rolls up his sleeves and God gets very personal. And he takes that dust and he creates the body of a man out of it. So unlike anything else, God really, really, really gets personally involved that he creates the body. And listen, he created the body before he created the spirit. It's made of God and God is as concerned about your body as anything. What you do with and in your body matters to God. He created it. It is the home of your soul while you're here. God is concerned. He creates the body first. Then he steps back and then he looks and he gets closer still and he breathes into Adam the breath of life and he takes on animation. He takes on personality and movement and suddenly you have a man. Body and spirit are totally of concern to the creator creator God. Neither one of these are unimportant or or just kind of like an add-on. These are critical things to God, come straight from his hand. Then we're shown that God put the man in the garden. He takes him and he shows him the garden. This is the home I have prepared for you. And what I want you to do as a man is I want you you to bring the, the, the potential of this world to its maximum. Yeah, it could produce fruit on its own, but I want you to till the soil. I want you to, to make the max, bring the most, the, that potential out. And I want you also to keep it, to protect it. You are in charge of taking care of your home I'm giving you. This detail is no small thing. Now, we're not going to unpack this for two weeks, but you've got to know this. This story is absolutely the bedrock of everything else that's said. And, and, and I don't like taking the time to tell you a story you already know, but we have to have this down as a foundation. He had conversations with a man, too. I'm sure they walked in the cool of the day, as it says in chapter 3. I think it, they walked in the cool of the day and talked about everything. Adam, here's where you came from. You're about 15 minutes old. But you look about 45. I don't know. I don't know what is. I don't, that's stuff I'd like to know. But guys, he doesn't tell us. Don't get fixated on it. It isn't worth your time. God says, I don't want. But he does look at Adam and say something he does record. When God records his words actually spoken with quotation marks, you really need to pay attention. Not that you shouldn't otherwise. But God speaks to Adam says, Adam, 
You see all these trees? Eat, 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 eat all you want. Everybody says he told him not to eat. No, he didn't tell him not to eat first. First of all, he told him to eat. Eat all you want from any of these trees. But there is one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm just telling you don't. And he gives, straight from the mouth of God, he gives Adam this command. And now man becomes an agent of God to obey him when he's got an option not to. And so even in the garden, there has to be an option. And he says, but there's one thing not good, Adam. Everything is very good. Everything about chapter 1, very good. Everything about man is very good, except one thing. You're alone, and I want to prove it to you. Now, up until this point, God's been the one to name everything. He's put the name and label on everything. Light, darkness, land, all that's spoken and named by God. But now God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pass the land animals by you. You name them. You're going to be like me. What I did to the creation, I want you to do to these animals. I want you to name them. And he's teaching Adam dominion. How do you care for the animals? Anyone who says Christians don't care about the world, just forget about it because we got heaven coming, is not reading Genesis 1. We care about the world. We care about creation. Even chickens. Anyway, so he's doing this, and he says... I want you to know this is your dominion. This is, this is how you care. But there's another reason I'm passing it before you. I want you to notice everyone that passes by is interesting but doesn't fit you. There's nothing else quite like you. And the apes were there. Apes went by. And as much as they looked kind of like us, wasn't suitable for Adam. And so they go by and he just he names them all. And it's like, well... There's nothing, and I don't think that would have taken all that long, actually, with God leading the, the parade. I don't think it would have taken all that long. And he names all these animals, and Adam says, you know what, I'm kind of alone. All these animals are paired, and they're out there doing their thing, you know, filling the earth, like God told them to. But what a, you see, in Genesis 1, you just get the idea man created in God's image, and he created male and female. But you have no idea whether one was first or not, and you don't really care. I didn't care. Who cares? But God cares because in Genesis chapter 2, when he draws us back, rewinds it, and closes in, he says, I'm telling you, there's something about this. I created the man first. And he created the man out of the dust. And, and, and there's nothing in, in creation at all that's like him. And so God says, I'll make something. I'll put you to sleep, and then I'll take from your side what is necessary to create the woman. So man was created from dust, and the woman was created from man. There's a little bit of interesting things there. And, and he presents it. As soon as Adam woke up, God presented Eve. It's like, let me introduce you. The father-in-law introduces the, the daughter. And Adam says that wonderful poem, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's saying, you're a lot like me, sort of. You're just like me, sort of. It's the super helper suitable. The word suitable means just like separate. Two words, compound words that put together very much like and very much unlike. And it's put together and you're like, well, yeah, man and woman are very much alike. But man and woman are just enough different. So you see they were alike to make unity possible. They were unlike to make unity necessary. Just a perfect combination. Chapter ends, everything's hunky-dory in paradise land. It's now not only Eden, it's the honeymoon time. 
But then something happens in Genesis chapter 3. No time stamp. We don't know when this happened. But she goes walking through the garden. You know the story. And a serpent starts talking to her. She doesn't seem too concerned about that. Which is a little bewildering to us. But let's just go with the story. The serpent talks to her. Never in this story does the serpent talk to Adam. Never in the story does Adam talk to the serpent. Never in the story does Adam intercept this conversation or interfere in this conversation and say, this is, my, this is our garden, I'm to keep it, what's the deal with this? Never once does that happen. She, the serpent goes after the woman, and I'm assuming the woman has heard the command of God, but we don't know that. We know that Adam has heard the command from God. So they're in the garden and talking about this, and the serpent starts teasing her about it, making her focus on this one tree she can't eat from. Did God really say, yeah, well, he said this. Well, no, what he's really doing is if you eat of that, you'll be just like him. And all of a sudden, we start questioning God's nature. We start questioning God's motives. We start questioning God's intelligence about why his rules are the way they are. And every sin since then has been that same basis. I kind of suspect God's keeping me from something. And I'm not trusting him. And that's the original sin, and she decides she can't take it anymore. She starts seeing that the fruit, which I don't think is an apple, I think it's a fig, because we know there are figs in the garden. It don't really matter. Again, God doesn't say, so don't get hung up on that. She can't help herself. She looks at that fig, and she says, or that fruit, and says, that looks good to eat, and it's going to make me wise. She's bought the lie of Satan as if it's fact. She takes that fruit, she eats it, hands it to Adam who's with her, and he eats it. And everything is messed up since. They're driven out of the garden, no longer have that wonderful protection and home that God provided. God comes along, and this is very interesting. Uh, just look at it for yourself. When God comes along, he says, Adam, what happened? Adam, what happened? Now in, now, in our times, I would be going to say, Eve, because <clears throat> God knew what happened. Eve, what happened? He doesn't, doesn't ask Eve. Ask Adam. I want you to remember that for a few weeks from now. Adam, give an account for what happened here. Adam says, the woman you gave me. So he blames the woman and blames God. He's a little bit ticked off, right? And God says to the serpent in response to that, you're going to crawl on the ground the rest of your life. But there's also a, another thing. There's going to be a seed of the woman, a very weird way to say it. Usually the seed is the man, the egg is the woman. But in this case, the seed of a woman is going to rise up and crush your head. This battle's going to go on. But there's going to come a day when the battle's going to be won by one of the offspring of this woman. That's just gospel right there in Genesis. It's a beautiful promise of hope even in the midst of a downfall it's a great thing to remember but then he goes on and he and he and he, and he looks at the woman and I want you to look I want you to look at this with me because it's just it's so telling about the history of humanity to the woman he said I'm going to multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you'll bring forth children you're, you're going to continue to have children that's not new what's new is I'm going to increase the pain tremendously the only thing worse I hear is a kidney stone right I, I don't know but that's what everybody says the next thing your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You are going to constantly fight with a man over the role I gave him. 
You are going to fight with it. You want that role. You want that position, and you are going to rise up and want that position. And you know what he's going to do with that position? Rather than being the loving, gentle, servant leader, he's going to use it to abuse you and keep you in your spot and dominate you for history. That is exactly human history. Would have never happened if the garden would have been maintained, but instead... Sin came in, and instead of God's word bringing order, we brought our will into this and our, our, our desire to fight this, and we've messed everything up with our sin. Now, that's our story. As Colin Ray says, I'm using an old country song, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. The question becomes, how do you read this story? Some come along and they say, it's just a story. It's descriptive. That's the word. It's descriptive, which means it describes what happened in history. Like, how did you meet your wife? And you tell the story. Or George Washington, how did he cross the Potomac? It's a story. And it's a neat story and everybody loves it and we tell it, but it has no real bearing on your life for today. It's something that happened long ago. How your parents met has no bearing on you today as far as its impact and it's a command in your life. It's just a neat story of how they got here. Is that what Genesis 1 is? A neat description of how God brought this about? Or is there something more to it? And if there is, how do we prove that? How do we know? Are we just making this up? The second view of it is it's prescriptive. This is how God wants it to be. Which means it's descriptive, all right. It's what actually happened, but it's also prescriptive. It is a prescription God gives you. Take this home, live this out. This is what I expect of humanity. Which of these two is this? And it matters. Our story, the, the source of our authority comes in a story that's a narrative. It's a story. The problem is, you know what you do with stories? Sometimes we just listen to them and enjoy them and just kind of go on like nothing happened, like watching a movie somewhere. But our, our source of authority is a narrative that contains an imperative. It's accurate, and it's also authoritative. Now, which position you accept is going to shape a lot of things. Is there anything in this story of what happened long ago that has a bearing on your life and behavior today? And I've got to... I've got to say to you, I'll, I'll tell you what I, I think our answer should be. It's that second one. And I'll give you three reasons, and then we're going to quit. Reason number one comes from Genesis 1, when God said, I want you to reproduce yourself. Every living component of creation is given an order from God to reproduce itself. The way we're going to fill this earth and sustain this earth and function in this earth is we're going to reproduce ourselves. Man... You need to serve as man. Woman, you need to serve as woman. And you need to fill the earth. Now, there are some people who say that's not even a command anymore. We're not under the creation mandate. I disagree. I've, I see nowhere in Scripture where God says, well, that's all right, lighten up on that. I sit across Lions Club table, right, with a guy who's a preacher from a different denomination. No longer around, so I can recite this. But as we were talking about this and homosexuality came up, he said, you know, I know what God had in mind. He, he wanted to fill the earth, and now the earth is full of people. He doesn't care whether we reproduce or not, so let men marry men and women marry women if they want to. That's an interesting perspective. 
I just don't see that anywhere in creation, anywhere in Scripture, anywhere. I believe Genesis 1 is telling us this is how earth sustains itself in the will and order of God. This is how we reproduce, and that's what we need to do. Second, second clue is in chapter 2, and if you look at chapter 2, verse 24, if you have your Bibles open or your phones on, it says this, Therefore, after he puts the man and woman together, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Was that written for Adam and Eve? If God said, if he was performing the wedding ceremony and says to Adam, Adam, you're to leave your, mom, your mother and your father and be united to Eve for the rest of your life, what is Adam going to say? Who? You know how I know Eve is for me? She's the only option I got. I don't have no mom and daddy. That makes it really easy. She was made for him. You know, everybody says there's one person made for you. I don't believe that, except for Adam. There was one just made for him. And he didn't have, so why did he put this in there? Why is this little note put at the end of chapter 2? Because God never intended this to just be historical description. He intended this to be the pattern to be observed and honored for the rest of time. He expects this to be the paradigm that human beings honor. So the reason he brings up something that can only apply to the future is because Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 do apply to the future, not just the past. Third clue, Jesus says so. Every time a preacher goes for an interview with the elders, do you know what one of the test questions is? Anybody want to guess whether they're going to hire you or not? What do you believe about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? That's what they always ask, right? You know, Valley View never asked me that, ever. What is wrong with you people? You aren't real elders at all. You'll get in bathtubs, but you won't ask the hard questions. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what do you, so can a person divorce? And you know what Jesus said? You remember this, right? Haven't you read that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Where does he go? I'm not asking. Listen, we're not turning to marriage here. But can I tell you, when he, I'm, not, I'm not interested in the answer he gave. I'm interested in how he got the answer. Where did Jesus go to answer the question? You see it in there? He goes to Genesis 1. When he's going to answer a question about this, he goes back to creation. Why would he do that? Because it is normative for Christian people under the reign of God who are living in the kingdom of God. We want to abide by Genesis 1 and 2 is creation story. That's where we're wanting to go. We don't want the fall. We want creation intent. It's not new fallen people. It's called the new creation we become into Christ. And so he answers that. And the interesting thing is he doesn't go to Genesis chapter 2. First, he goes to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 says nothing about marriage. Nothing. He didn't, need to, he didn't need, need to quote that, made them male and female. That has nothing to do with anything. Except that he's not just affirming marriage, he's affirming gender. And he wants to affirm gender as well as marriage when he answers the question. And so he answers the question by quoting Genesis 2, but then they come back and they say, well, what about Moses? You know, he, he said we could divorce her and give her a certificate of divorce. And, and, and Jesus says, but it was not that way from the beginning. And where we're trying to get is the beginning. 
He's saying to us, Genesis is prescriptive. It is normative. It is doctrine for the believer. If that is the case, three things real quick. God's image that he made us in is comprised of two biological genders, male and female. It is gender binary. I want you to remember that, gender binary. God made them male and female. And you're gonna, most of you are looking at me like, well, duh. Anybody wanna guess how many genders we're being told are out there? How many? 53. It's not even divisible by two. 53 genders. This sermon would have been a lot longer if God had included 51 genders in here. Gender binary, and I'm not making fun of those people either because I'm going to tell you we have a special responsibility to them. That's two weeks from now. Number two, God made Adam first. Then he made Eve from him as his equal, totally equal God-imaged helper. They're made in God's image, but they're also different. That's what you know. And third, when sin entered the world through the garden, everything was messed up. Creation was subject to what Paul calls the bondage of corruption. Everything's been tainted. And so what we see as alterations of God's created intent have an explanation. We know where we came from. We know how we should live, and we also know what in the world is wrong. We know it from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But I want to recall one thing. There was one glimpse of hope in that garden. And there was a day when one seed of that woman did grow up. After not needing the seed of a man, he grew up born of a virgin. He took on every temptation that Satan could throw at him and draw him away from the will of God with, even using his greatest tool, stomping him out in death. He bruised the Son of God with death, thought he had won, and then that stone rolled away, and that Son of Man came back to life and crushed the head of the serpent. No longer are we held under the jurisdiction of the fall. No longer are we subject to the bondage of corruption. We are empowered by God through His Spirit to arrive at everything God has planned for us. It's true if you're a believer. The great news of the garden is now passed to us. And I say to you this morning, that Lord of Lords, who is the seed of that woman, who crushed that serpent, is here today, and he wants you bad. He wants you to, to bow your knee in his presence and say his name and let him give you the power to become everything God intended you to become. You can't get there without his power of his spirit comes upon you when you're immersed and this morning if you're ready to get victory and be able to stand in the victory of the sun just submit to him now as we stand and as we sing turn my heart O lord like rivers of water turn my heart O lord by your hand till my whole life flows 
in the river of your spirit and my name brings honor to the lamb turn my heart O lord like rivers of water turn my heart O lord by your hand till my whole life flows in the river of your spirit and my name brings honor to the lamb lord i surrender to your work in me i rest my life within your loving hands turn my heart o lord like rivers of water turn my heart o lord by your hand till my whole life flows in the river of your spirit and my name brings honor to the Lamb. <clears throat> we will close with two verses of My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Our Shepherd's Blessing and Prayer. <clears throat> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and say. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's one of the most eloquent passages uh, in Scripture, and it really describes clearly uh, what is set before us for this coming week. As we leave this place, let us all be encouraged to do just as this Scripture says in Micah. Let us all act justly towards everyone that we meet. Let us show mercy to others, even as we want mercy to be shown to us. And let us walk in humility. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for uh, the blessings that you give us each day in our lives. We, ask, we thank you, Lord, for the, for the blessing of being here today, being reminded of the power of your creation, and being reminded of uh, 